Hello and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Garrity. On today's show, we're joined by Dr. Benham Tabrizi, author of Going on Offense, a leader's playbook for perpetual innovation. Benham has taught at Stanford University and its executive programs for 25 years. He's the author of 10 books on leading innovation and transformation and served as an advisor to many large global companies, the US president and governmental agencies. So it's safe to say we're in good hands today. Benham, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me, Leon. Good to be here. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about your new book, Going on Offense. It's kind of an insider view into the drivers of success and challenges in 26 organizations. First off, I was just wondering what made you want to write this particular book, because you've written so many, but what, what was the inspiration for this one? That's a great question. Out of the 10 books, two of them are the recent books. One of them was Rapid Transformation, where I kind of go through the sociology and the processes as, and the tools by which you need to change an organization very rapidly. And, and at the time, 2007, you know, a lot of changes were taking years and years, and this was a rapid transformation. And based on data, I published it with Harvard Business School Press. That book did extremely well. Then I realized that the biggest challenge to transformation is what goes on in leaders' head. So I wrote the book called Inside Out Effect, which is about mm -hmm. leadership transformation. Mm -hmm. And that added quite a bit of, uh, if you will, oomph to the transformation work that I was doing. And I thought, okay, I'm done between these two. I don't need to do anything else. Until a conversation I had with the CEO of Ericsson, who's now CEO of Verizon, Hans Vesberg, where he brought his top executives to Stanford. And I asked him, you know, over wine, why, um, why did you send your people, Hans, to, to Stanford? And he said, well, I want them to learn about the secret sauce of Silicon Valley. And then I realized, and I go into depth in, in, in the book about this, Liam, I realized, wow, that night I stayed awake and I thought about, wow, there is a third leg missing in this stool, and that is the operating system of really successful organization, you know, their DNA. And that's where I just started. This was like six, seven years ago, and I haven't stopped since then. I'm so excited. I just got an early copy of the book, by the way. Oh, it's brilliant. Out till 22nd, but the printer was able to beat the deadline and send me a copy. So like you said, I did a huge survey of over 6,000 executives, academics, you know, industry experts in terms of what do you guys consider as the most innovative organizations and what are the characteristics of these organizations? So we started with large, large data set, lots of characteristics and so forth. And as we just double clicked on each of these organizations, and by the way, it's not just really amazing, most innovative, perpetually organizations such as like Apple, Amazon, Tesla, and, and Microsoft. It's also a study of organizations that didn't do well, which wanted to make sure we don't have survivorship bias, talked to a lot of insiders, and so wanted to come up with very practical playbook, if you will, evidence-based, so that uh, readers could actually apply to their organizations right away. 
That's fantastic. I love how this all came from that spark over dinner. And like you say, it's at the, it's at the start of your book. It's a great story. So like there's so many of these great stories in your book. So I suppose today we're going to just have a, a talk about some of them. You mentioned one of them there today, but like I'd love to hear particularly about now that AI is on everyone's minds, how CEO Satya Nadella rediscovered Microsoft's soul, if you will, back in 2014 and started to plant the seeds of AI success when maybe like Google didn't. Could you tell me a bit about that? Yes. There's an HBR piece that I wrote a couple of months ago, which is based on the book and which is based on this question. And that is how Microsoft became innovative again. And you're absolutely right. I think, you know, comparing Microsoft to Google is a great comparison. It's a great pairwise comparison. As a researcher, you always like to see pairwise comparisons. It's a tale of two cities. Uh, Satya became a CEO in 2014. And at the time, Microsoft wasn't doing well. In fact, Jeff Bezos would look to his east in Seattle and say, you know, the last thing I want you guys to be, to his employees, to his million employees and so forth, I don't want you to be like these guys. So it was like a boogeyman. Microsoft was a boogeyman for for Amazon. And he took over. People didn't think that he's going to be able to turn this around. But he went back to fundamentals. I, I talk about this in great length. Created this startup mindset, pivoting, if you will. He did some very bold moves. And a couple of his bold moves was that, uh, first of all, he realized that engineers were becoming third-class citizens within Microsoft. So he elevated their status and he looked at areas where it's going to be big. One of them was cloud. So he put a lot of engineers, created this big cloud organization, went after that huge opportunity. But he had the foresight to also realize that AI is the future. So he went on series of acquisitions, series of partnership on AI, which is to date is still going on. And on the other hand, if you look at Google, when Sundar Pichai took over in 2015, Google wasn't doing that that bad, if you will. And at some point, it had 70% of the top talents in AI within Google. And, you know, all of a sudden last year, Microsoft came out. And so the reason I wrote that piece and the reason, you know, this book is all about is these things don't happen because of one good move or one bright idea. This thing is brewing, like you said. Microsoft has transformed this culture and Google hasn't. Now, I am not willing to say Google is uh, is doomed because Google has amazing talent. Their founders are back. And I have very high hopes about Google, but this is a great story about a culture of perpetual innovation and how the importance of culture, if you will, in terms of being able to continuously be successful in the marketplace. How do you, like for leaders who hear that story and kind of want to emulate it, what do you think the kinds of conditions, like you said, culture, should they be kind of trying to create in order to set themselves up, I suppose, for being open to these kinds of things, like in the way other people mightn't be? That's an excellent question. And, you know, there are several things that are very, very important. Number one is to see reality. And I think, you know, when 
the example I give my executives and my students is that, you know, when when someone goes to jail, they have a mugshot uh, of their picture and so forth. So put a mugshot of exactly what the problems are, what the challenges are, and get people engaged in terms of creating those and so forth. But more importantly, you need to have a DNA, like cultural values, and be able to inculcate that not just on the senior team, but across the organization. And as I said, the book comes up with eight characteristics of what it takes to be successful and three archetypes, three underlying archetypes that really is very critical for these organizations to succeed. And one of these, what I call generous, and generous not in terms of uh, how we know generous, generous in terms of your commitment to your purpose. And this is not just like a mission statement. These people are truly, truly, truly committed. The same way, the same way Steve Jobs was committed, his employees were committed, Tesla is committed, and also things like the obsession about customers and, and what have you. Another key archetype is the ferocity of these organizations. I mean, these organizations are not for faint of heart. It's very chaotic, it moves very fast. Jack Wells used to buy a lot of companies and someone once asked him the difference between a company that's successful that you're buying and a company that truly failed. And he said, you know, successful companies like driving a NASCAR in a very windy road, it's raining, snow conditions, and anytime you could just kind of, you know, turn over and so forth. And, you know, in a failing company, it's basically like driving in uh, somewhere in South with your family you know, with a really nice uh, country music playing and everybody is happy and enjoying the sunshine. So it's really about that intensity and ferocity. And finally, the last thing I, I found is that these organizations are bold and courageous in their action, not just executives, but their people. And that unleashing of talent is what this book is all about. You mentioned there under that heading of generous customer obsession. And, yes. you know, that's something that we're really big about here. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and why that's so, you know, vital. And, and who out there is, is really doing that well, do you think? So a great, great example, of course, you know, one of the reasons that I love doing a research of several organizations is that I wanted to avoid this thing where there is a book written about one company and then it invites all the other organizations. And as you know, 90, 95% of organizations are not like this, to be like this particular company. I wanted to give a flavor of several organizations and then leave the leaders of organizations or managers or executives say, oh, I want to be 10% in this area like Tesla. I want to be 20% like Microsoft and so forth. But in customer obsession, two organization comes into mind, very, very different approach. As everyone knows, Amazon is known to work backward from the customer. It's all about the customer. Just to give you a story, because there's nothing like narrative, we mm. studied with head of the fulfillment in one of the Amazon centers, and he basically told us, you have a package that's supposed to get to you at a certain date. We're late in getting this package to you. You know what? We're just going to FedEx this to you. We're going to incur the cost because we want to have a satisfied cut. That's the type of a thing customer obsession is. And everything they do, every process they change, every services they change, it has to directly impact the customer 
and it has to lower the cost for the customer. And I think that is a really, really great example of what it's like to be customer obsessed. You know, I'm beginning to really realize after studying these companies that it's not just obsession. There's also love of customer. Mm. There is this thinking that, you know, we really, really want to make customers happy. And if you talk to people who use uh, Apple products or Tesla drivers, I mean, there's that loyalty and excitement that they have that is bar none. Approaches are very different. And that's what this book is all about, is there is no one size to get there. And that's why I talked about organizations that are very different structurally, quite different when you compare them together. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. You mentioned, you know, Amazon strategies for kind of avoiding complacency and and maintaining this dynamic approach to business in order to stay out of that day two mindset. I wonder, would you mind reminding us what day two mindset is? Yeah, well, day two mindset is, I would say, 90% of organizations out there, unfortunately. And as you know, when you study startups, you realize everybody's so visible. As organizations grow and grow and grow, people become invisible. Mm -hmm. And they feel like they don't matter. Politics becomes rampant. A mentor of mine, David House, who transformed Bay Networks and was a protege of Andy Grove in Intel, used to say, when you go to a organization that is, now I call it day two. He didn't, we didn't use a day two then. A lot of executives are happy because they're not accountable for a lot of things, but then they get big fat paychecks. <laughs> Whereas in a lot of these day one type organizations that I studied, they don't necessarily love what they do because it's very chaotic, it's very high pressure, but they love their job and they love the impact they're making. Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the stories in the book is kind of pops into my head because we're currently doing our performance review here at Intercom. But it's basically Tesla's decision to replace performance reviews with a focus on, 
you know, immediate feedback. I find that intriguing. What's the impact of that shift on employee like motivation, growth, and the company's overall culture? Well, you know, one of the things that I'm very intrigued about Tesla, by the way, it's the most chaotic organization I studied. <laughs> and <laughs> it's just fascinating to talk to the people who work there to study this organization. The whole culture is anathema to known methods. And, you know, we tend to, you know, uh, think about, all right, we need to have every six months or every year people need performance about. That's a known method. That's what a lot of people propose and so forth. Now, let's just think of it from a first principle or just basic, basic truth. The truth is, if you have to wait six months or a year to give somebody feedback about their performance, something is really wrong. Mm -hmm. Giving feedback you know, having an honest conversation should be a daily affair, especially now that, you know, we're, we're more virtual and so forth. That has been a huge thing. And I must say, I mean, uh, I know some people think Tesla used to have performance evaluation regularly, but it's never, never really had it. And because of the chaotic nature of it. <laughs> and again, like I said, it's a very unusual organization. The thing that I want to really emphasize about this book that's so important is this whole holistic way of approaching something. Mm -hmm. And there is no one magic bullet that you would do that all of a sudden could turn things around. Tesla has extremely, extremely ambitious goals. People really believe that they are part of a movement to change the world. I mean, when you talk to them, I mean, the whole Inside Out book that I wrote, the question was that I was intrigued was, why is it people are willing to die for a cause, but show up for a living and barely show up because the uh, Gallup post study so that people are pretty much disengaged at work. And so uh, Tesla, you know, you're not only supposed to do your job, you're supposed to solve whatever problem is at hand that you can contribute to. There is this extreme collaboration there Again, it's that holistic way that they put this thing together. And as, as you and I know, and the world knows, Elon hasn't had a lot of time spending on Tesla lately because of Twitter and others. But the organization culture is such that a lot of people who are actually running this, they're kind of like mini Elons, questioning everything, trying to make a difference, intensely working on some really, really tough problems. <laughs> you mentioned at the start there that obviously this book it goes from, you know, it's not just all the successes. There's obviously some of the stories. I mean, General Motors missed opportunity in the electric vehicle market is is a, a cautionary tale. Like what lessons can other established companies learn from their lack of boldness, you know, and, and how they could pivot to seize, you know, emerging market trends? I think you you answered your own question. I mean, <laughs> really, the, re the reason, the exact reason why a lot of these established legacy companies cannot match these type of organizations. By the way, let's also face it, Microsoft is a legacy organization that turned around. That's what I love about Microsoft. I mean, I, I have a list of organizations that uh, were like top, in the uh, Fortune 50 or something, the top 10, and 90% of them kind of disappeared. And Microsoft is the only one that has survived in the past 20 years. But at the, at, the, at the end of the day, many of these legacies that you refer to tend to be cautious. 
They have cash cows that they rely on, but these cash cows could precipitate drastically. And then when they do a move, they do it incrementally. And, and as you know, you basically said, well, they're not bold. That's why I put a chapter on what boldness mean. Mm-hmm. And it's about making big bets. Let me give you an example. During COVID, a lot of people were moving out of Silicon Valley. People were li- moving out of uh, San Francisco. People thought the uh, Silicon Valley is dead, right? All of a sudden, out of nowhere, this AI revolution happens. We've had more venture capital investment than ever. And now this company out of nowhere came and became a trillion dollar organization, which is NVIDIA. Now, NVIDIA is a fascinating case. In 2018, Jensu basically bet his farm, bet the farm on AI and created these GPUs. And now you see most of these startups basically paying for the shovels and tools for AI and he's now becoming a dominant semiconductor company in the world, if you. And nobody is asking about Intel or other organizations. So it is those type of bets and being consistent. But by the way, just a bet is not enough. You need to have a culture that is conducive. And this whole book is about unless you have this culture, you're not going to be repeat these mistakes. You're not going to run in all cylinders. Just before we wrap up, I'd love to get your thoughts. You kind of mentioned AI there, but I'd love to get your thoughts on AI and customer support and you know how you see those things working together in the future. Well, next Monday, I think around 11 o'clock, I'm giving a talk at the Stanford Executive Program for People, Culture and Performance. And I will talk about AI as a source of competitive advantage. So I've been thinking a lot about this, especially the fact that I did my bachelor's and master's. I studied AI algorithm. At that time, we didn't even dream that we'd be here today Mm. because we didn't have great computing. But just to give you a very important latest information on this issue, Philippines, a lot of call centers are in Philippines. Mm. It's, I think, 200 to $300 billion industry or more. And Philippine is really worried because a lot of these call centers are going to be replaced with AI. And, you know, call center is one of those things that you could easily solve complex problem using AI based on data, based on past data. Let me really end by this nugget. If, if there's one thing I want people to get from this podcast, that is AI will not replace jobs. AI will replace people who are not augmenting AI in their organizations. So part of that second article I wrote in HBR about AI was about how you can go as an organization on offense, augment AI, and find areas where you can grow and increase productivity. That perfectly sums it up. Just lastly then, where can people go if they want to keep up with you and your work? They can find me in LinkedIn. I'm trying to be more active in Twitter, but LinkedIn is a place I I spend a lot of time lately, especially. The book can be ordered from Amazon. It'll be out in 22nd. And I would love to engage people on LinkedIn if they read the book or they like it. I like to hear about it. And if they want to write a review or make a comment on LinkedIn, I'll, I'll be more than happy to answer. Brilliant. Well, Benham, thank you so much for joining me today. 
My pleasure, Liam. And thank you for wonderful questions. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Benham Tabrizi. That's it for today. I'll be back next week with another installment of Inside Intercom. Thanks for listening. This is Inside Intercom.